Hello, and welcome to a spooky episode of Saturday Night Shoggy. Today, I am joined by my lovely co-host, B-Lord and Sakaki. Say hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> when did Berrigan become British? <laughs> uh, this is one of my many talents. What's the Xenoblade? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually Welsh. Did you know that? You're Makes Welsh. so much sense now. <laughs> Marion's the secret rare blade in Xenoblade 2. Okay, uh... Alongside our usual co-host, we have a very special guest, <laughs> Lum Ranmayasha. Say what's up, Lum. Hello, and I'm here to exercise you, you Welsh Valentine's vampire, with your off-seasonal intro. I've got the mirror in my hand that sees through the horrors inside you. I'm through the other side of this mic. I will exercise your monsters and stomp them out so we can have a normal podcast discussion on these lovely stories <laughs> from Rumiko Tanahashi. I'm melting! <laughs> We're disintegrating into monsters! Oh, it's so disgusting and nauseating. We gotta stop <laughs> all these monsters. There's nothing left of Marion but their clothes. That was kind of effed up. Well, <laughs> it's as messed up as the stories in the book, or the first story in the book. <laughs> yeah, today today's episode is going to be about Came the Mirror and Other Tales by Rumiko Takahashi. We had to get the Takahashi expert from Maga Mavericks. Oh, thank you. I will say I am an enthusiast. I don't know if I can claim to be an expert when we have the good folks at like Rubik World out there. And like so many like longtime diehard Takahashi fans, you know, I was just on a stream uh, with Brent and Jordy uh, and the rest of the Lum Squad crew who is like showing a huge collection of UI merch. And it's like I couldn't even hope to to compare in terms of the, <laughs> that kind of collection. So, you know, but no, I am a huge enthusiast and lover of Takashi's works. And it is so exciting to get another one of her short story collections available out here and localized it has been 20 nearly 24 years since the last release of one of Rumiko Takahashi's one-shot collections in the U.S. Wonder Double came out in like July of 1998 so it has been a long time and this book in particular Damn. for the Japan side goes it was the first new release in the Rumik World imprint of Takahashi short story collections in 20 years Whereas Wonder Double came out in Japan in 1995, and then King the Mirror came out in 2015. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a long time coming. And, yeah, like, it's cool to just have another collection of Rumic World stories. And there are a lot of, you know, other releases from Takashi in terms of one-shot collections in the Rumic Theater series that this I would love to see them license. And, you know, I would love to see them republish the older Rumic World and Rumic Theater collections. And hopefully if this book does well and with as all in on Takashi as they've been doing, hopefully we will see that come to pass. But this is a great first start. Inject all of it into our veins. Yeah, just turn us all into parasites. <laughs> <laughs> 
giving people the heebie-jeebies on the inside since 2015. <laughs> 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 I was, you know, I actually was wondering uh, when this came out, and I, I did notice at the end when I saw the, the I forgot what that page is called, the credits page? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Because uh, I, I was like, oh, this is, it's an interesting story. It reminded me a little bit of, um, I don't know why, so the vibe I got from these short stories reminded me a lot of... Um, <laughs> Uh, oddly enough, Beyond or Belief Factor Fiction, Beyond mm-hmm. Belief Factor Fiction, uh, hosted by Jonathan Frakes, because uh, <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of it is, is like veers between like horror and suspense and also uh, humor, yeah, and like uh, you know that way that Takahashi does, yeah, which is like it's very goosebumpy, but for more an adult audience, you know, a lot of these yeah. are published in big comic. So for more an adult crowd. But the, the main distinction between Rumic World and Rumic TV Collections is the Rumic World Collections do also contain Shonen Sunday uh, and her Shonen one-shots. So we do have like two from Sunday in particular. But yeah, this is like generally a collection of horror stories. And like pretty much annually, Takahashi does write a new one-shot alongside her, you know, current serialization, usually in big comic. And usually these works tend to be horror teams. I think that she likes to use them as a way to explore ideas and subject matter. She can't quite do, wouldn't be like totally appropriate to do and whatever she's working with at the time. So especially like, you know, we're seeing, you know, more slice of lifey kind of stories, particularly like in the stories that ran during the Inuyasha era. And then we see like more hard horror type stories during the Renee era in terms of the stories in this section. And it's pretty cool to see. I had read a few of these before, just individually when people translated. Just half of these I'd read before. Uh, Revenge It All came to me on Sweet Sunday when people translated them. But it's cool to like have the collection out and like read all the these stories in this book can have some new stories from Takashi that I hadn't read before, which is really nice. But yeah. Nice. Okay. I mean, I, I will say that this is the first time I've really read. Well, no, I've read one of her uh, collections, but a little bit of Macho and Dinner. But obviously that's in Japanese, so I don't understand everything. But yeah, so this would be my first time reading one of her collections in English. And it yeah. definitely still very much has her vibe because um, as I was reading through it, I was like, yeah, this is definitely only a thing Takahashi would do. But yeah. it does it does have that air. It, it does have this kind of like vibe that you wouldn't get from like the Sunday works. Like the one that did run in Sunday did feel something like I, I was Rama. describing it. To- I mean, it was yes! very Rama. Yes. One with yes. the main protagonist a- fear of cats, the strange in their relationship between him and the female lead. Yeah. I mean the transformation gimmick too. Yeah. It's very like, Oh, this is kind of like a return to kind of Rama motif. Which I found yeah, I was, pretty interesting. I was describing it to Jack as Garfield with Ranma. <laughs> 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 but like, yeah, it, it that one felt like a Ranma. It would be a Ranma episode. So, mm-hmm. but the one that I, I guess what surprised me most, I, I won't go too much into detail because we'll probably talk a lot about it, is just the um My Sweet Sunday between her and Adachi. That I saw it on the table of contents, but I wasn't expecting what it ended up being. And yeah. I that was 
that it, it had to be my favorite part of this I think anthology. that's the other thing we gotta talk about is that not only is this like the first like short story collection from Takahashi published by Viz in over 20 years like this is ends up being kind of the first like a publication of one of Mitsuru Dachi's manga they've done since they finished Cross Game because oh, yes God, My Sweet yeah. Sunday is a collaboration manga between Adachi and Takahashi exploring their relationship to Shonen Sunday and how they came up as manga creators and how interconnected their journeys were and yeah, it's just Takashi and Najachi kind of going back and forth in terms of outlining, drawing out their lives, culminating in their fateful meeting over Beef Hot Pot in 1982. So yeah, yeah it's really awesome that in the process of releasing this book, we also have a new Adachi manga localized for the first time in nearly 10 years when the last volume of Cross King came out. So it is very much well welcome. And of course, this short story uh, this one shot was published to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Shonen Sunday back in 2009, which very appropriate to have like Adachi and Takahashi kind of both draw out and talk about their relationship with Sunday as like the two creators who probably like really made it what it is known for today. Mm-hmm. The king and queen of Sunday. Mm-hmm. I like I like that Adachi kind of na- name drops Aoyama though. No, he <laughs> like, acknowledges Aoyama is like yeah, no Aoyama is a big dog too. But like yeah, yeah, yeah he does. I mean, if those are king and queen, uh, Aoyama is god. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of it kind of goes back to the interview that I translated with Aoyama and Adachi way back, where yeah, even there Adachi kind of acknowledges yeah, you've had. Mm-hmm. He's of course very humble, like he and he is in this in this too, where he's like, I've just been doing the same thing for like thirty years. You're the yeah. one that's actually pioneering doing new things. Yeah, no, <laughs> so, he really says that, oh, it really is because of trail bases like Takahashi that I you know, I was able to kinda ride their cultures and also make my mark in Sunday as well. Because his big debut in Sunday did come after UI was published and stuff but also takahashi for long time has always you know felt like you know tatashi someone i need to catch up to he's like a person whose level of work is like someone i really want to match and it's like you know because she originally like saw like one of his her first works published in Sunday, like back when she was a kid, and you know he's he six years older than her, so it's like she like was aware of him all the way back then. And for the longest time, she would be reading manga magazines and be thinking, "Oh, is this Adachi's new work? Is this Adachi? Does he's using a new <laughs> pseudonym?" But this is Adachi, right? And she was wrong. It's on these kids. It was just different authors. <laughs> but no, like she was following his career so closely for years, and he she he was someone she really looked up to, and she still looks up to. There was a recent translation of an interview from the from a Rupomo Takahashi like essay book that got translated mm-hmm. in the comics journal uh just recently and in that old too like the writer was commenting about the meeting Takahashi and Aoyama uh, or Takahashi and Adachi and Takahashi was talking about Adachi in a very reverent way of like man he's like someone I still can't beat I still can't catch up to and it's like it's so interesting that they have like this such long standing relationship of inspiring each other. And like, they have such a 
really close friendship and rivalry in terms of like pushing and inspiring each other to like want to create something like as good as the other which is so so cool yeah 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 i i think um it's it's a really good uh thing whenever we get uh these kind of comics about like how the comic creators like got to where they are especially when it comes to like interpersonal relationships with other creators because that kind of um i don't know like that kind of content i guess is something that it it provides a lot of context for um like the the trajectory in their careers like oh like throughout this whole time like uh like takahashi she she tried uh, submitting works to other magazines or whatever, but then uh, she had one comment. She's like, hmm, I think I'll go to Sunday because their readers are nicer to do. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's I a super interesting too. look at, like, the magazine culture time. Like, what were the magazines and the titles that were, like, really turning heads right. and trailblazing for the time? Like, the discussion if of this is the magazine, magazine like, the premier magazine for cultivating new manga Thailand that was run by Tesca and a lot of other greats of the era that Adachi was encouraged to submit to by his brother like that was super interesting just seeing like what magazines what creators were like really encouraging the growth of these artists the next generation mm-hmm. yeah especially like cool seeing like the types of manga that like takashi was reading yeah I, I gotta say i love seeing joe yabuki takahashi style oh, she is a big uh, yabuki joe fan she's a big ashina joe fan there is an interview out there that I don't know his translator yet. Should be, hopefully, someone will one day. But, like, yeah, no, she's Sakaki, a big fan. Please but, do yeah, it. It's also it's so <laughs> cute to see her, like, fangirl Ryuichi Kagami. And, like, her yes. like, oh, I want to be a, uh, in this guy's world. His art is so cool. I want to be a manga creator. I want to go to school to meet Ryuichi Kagami. And just by chance, by enrolling Kazuo Koeki's Higasanjuka, she had one of her first, like, guest speakers was Ikegami. And I love the expression she makes. She draws where she's like just smitten, just awestruck, and just has this wanting desire to like tell him she loves it. It's just so so fun. <laughs> just to see like what kind mangaka she idolized and she fangirled over. Yeah, I also I think it's uh her story is really interesting too because there were times where she was kind of discouraged and like wasn't as like hyper focused on making art or whatever. Like in college, she majored in history, mm-hmm. uh, but there there were a lot of people that uh, at her at her girls' college also really liked manga, so yeah. they joined the manga club, and that's what kind of reinvigorated her her whole passion for it. Yeah, which is it's pretty cool. It's like it's never too late to like pick something back up. No, totally. I mean, we both see Takashi and Adachi kind of fight against their parents or fight against like societal expectations of like oh we'll grow up to get like kind of normal type jobs you know that's the parents like the dachi frames it his journey of like this is the story of how i would disappoint my parents to keep disappointing them it's so (laughs) (laughs) i like that he throws out there too that his brother is like he was already a disappointment so yeah (laughs) (laughs) he draws his brother is like holding him at gunpoint and like i'm gonna take i'm gonna make a mangaka out of mitsuru i'm taking him with me <laughs> it's very funny it's like his it's nice seeing his brother is such a huge in, point of encouragement in his life like a huge like mentor like telling me hey you're really good at it you should enter this contest and when he saw that oh dachi really has talent he like got acknowledged in the contest he's like oh you know this guy is this 
real potential, you know, I'm gonna help cultivate him, and that in turn encouraged him to, like, uh, return to his own dreams of, like, being a Mongarth himself, which was really nice and sweet. And yeah, and yeah. he's drawing a Mong kind of an autobiographical manga right now of him and uh, the older brother, uh, Sutomu, mm-hmm. is drawing one of him and his younger brother, and it's currently running in Gesson. So yeah, so I, I really worked out. Yeah, so that that could also offer some more anecdotes and everything to you know his journey. Um, yeah, but yeah, like I going back just a little bit to um, you know the formation of the Shonen Magazine. There's a rich history to that, and I do think that part of the reason why Sunday was so kind <laughs> to newbies at that point back then was because um, it was a newer magazine. This, yeah, it was a newer magazine, and there's this idea, like, there was, I think by the time, like, Takahashi and Mitsuru Adachi were, like, looking to get into manga, they had started solidifying what a shonen magazine should be, because it mm. was a way different way back in the day. You had, like, essays, like, the very first episode, the very first um, issue of Sunday actually had, like, an essay uh, from a child psychologist in it, so they weren't really mm. even doing manga that much until way later I forget the guy's name that he solidified that, hey, manga magazine should be mainly centered around like manga. Before that, Shonen Sunday was a magazine. The manga Mm. was like like a latter priority. Yeah. And we saw in Adachi's story that, you know, he wasn't that interested in Sunday originally because like to him, like the real attraction was like the rental manga from Gekiga manga creators you know, on his rental shop that, you know, they, he would, could submit like, uh, manga drawings to them. And then like, they would, if their like letter or drawing got published, they could receive like a hand drawn picture from the artist. So like, that's what he was really obsessed with when he was in elementary school. And then when, you know, Sunday came out, you know, there were just other magazines that were like really turning heads, you know, like calm and stuff like that. So you know, it's it's interesting, but Sunday eventually would grow its reputation, like, in the 70s. Like, as Takashi would mention, they had series from Umez and George Akiyama and Shinji Mishima. Yeah. And that's where Sunday was, like, really starting to turn heads. So, it's super interesting. I also like seeing that <laughs> Adachi did also learn a lot of his... Uh, manga skills from Shitari Shinomori's Ultimate Manga Handbook, which I, I do see referenced a lot as like a book that a lot of manga readers really learned from, from that generation. What a god. Oh yeah. Not only is he the most prolific manga artist of all time, comics artist of all time really, but he also inspired generations of talent through his books. I love and- that, that when they they show off his book, you know, the Ultimate Manga mm-hmm. Handbook, like Adachi's talking about what's a draft, what's a storyboard, what's a deadline, yeah, yeah. and then like he still, and it, it says on the side, I still don't, I still struggle with this one, I still struggle, I still struggle to understand that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Adachi's sense of humor just shines on through, and it's no wonder that oh, he's yeah. been around so long. So, yeah, and we could talk about how Takahashi almost ended up in Jump. Good thing that they, yeah, no. <laughs> It was Torish. It looked like she was drawing Torishima when he was saying, like, oh, "Oh, a very popular, famous manga editor reviewed my work, but it didn't go anywhere. Kind of does (laughs) look like Torishima. So so funny to think that Torishima passed on Takashi. (laughs) 
to where she would just look at Slayer and was like, oh, I effed up here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My bad, fam. <laughs> Maybe he made up for it by discovering Toriyama. <laughs> it's time one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just such a fascinating, like, history of manga fan culture at the time. And also, like, the development of these creators as artists. And yeah, like, just their parallel journeys that ultimately end up intersecting it's so fascinating to just read and especially like i love the motif of like the star that adachi notices that is like the signal of like his eventual fated meeting to takashi which is a great recurring motif as he's like going through every part of the story and calling back to the star that all oh, this is a single single of like when i will meet like his utter like co-talent that is gonna be like lifelong friend and rival in this like say magazine mm, yeah it's true true all right viz you need you you need to give us some more adachi where's a mix viz yeah you give know us if mix. there was a chance of any series you would think it'd be mixed but i guess the anime didn't attract enough enthusiasm so i don't know I'm gonna go cry in the corner. Yeah, no, it's a shame. We should. We must go deeper and older and get touch. I mean, we should get touch. Touch is a manga classic, a seminal, uh, informative work that you know probably should be made available to be read officially. But I don't know if they'll take the chance on it. Unfortunately. Yeah. Also, man, the the cover for My Sweet Sunday is so good. Yeah. Also, I, I love that it's in color too. It's it's yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, I appreciate that there a lot of these pages are in color, which is really nice. But yeah, the it's also fun looking at the My Sweet Sunday cover and seeing that wow, Adachi has like twice as many series represented as Takahashi in this just because he's done so many works in the same amount of time that Takahashi has done like her like four big works for Sunday at, at this point when this was published. Yeah, yeah. And she, at the time, this was what, 2009, I think? Yeah, and Yasha yep. had just ended a few months before and okay, Renee yeah. hadn't started yet. Yeah, because like Takahashi did mention that I'm still thinking about what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. So, oh, Nijiro Togorashi, I forgot about that. Yo, if that's, there's a work that they need, they could get that. That's fairly short. So, mm. and it just got a stage play recently. So that's yeah, that's what I was thinking of because I remember like, oh, it had something in the works recently. Yeah, yeah. stage play. Adachi just needs to get one of his works yet, like a anime that like really hits, like it's like really talked about, and then maybe we'll get something again. But I don't know. Yeah. Or Biz can just take a chance on like an older title of his. But I mean, we are seeing more chances taken on older titles from established creators you know if like orochi can get published and you know kazuo mez might have more you know of an attraction uh from the same like yeah you know type of acclaimed horror mangaka in the same way you know ito is and drifting classroom is also fairly popular well-regarded series but you know if we can take a chance at classics like that i mean surely we could also try and put some effort into some of dachi's older work too but of course like yeah it'll have to probably be a shorter work because even orochi it's like only a six volume series i did find amusing that like takahashi brings up orochi at one moment i'm like oh hey that's coming out in a few months yeah good timing guys opportunity for this not to promote it at the back of the book it's not one of the promotions that they put at the back of this volume you know you know missed opportunity what are the promotions it's 
it's number five in Urusei, Maizan, and Mermaid. So, you know, okay. uh, yeah. other concurrent Takashi publications, which makes sense. But yeah, you know, Miss Opportunity did not also promote it. I guess we should transfer. We've already talked about the back of the book. I guess we could work our way backwards or just head to the Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's also interesting to, you know, talk about this because it is kind of like the odd story out in the collection in terms of like the other stories are fiction pieces that are all focused around a horror team or concept this is much an autobiographical piece i would say it is loosely thematically connected in the overall team of the stories of like it the stories being about the ways in which we affect each other's lives like if, if we were to prescribe and that to be the overarching theme of the book and between the collection of stories, the My Street Sunday does fit into that. But in terms of like the direction of the story, like the other stories focus on kind of like more negative consequences of the way we affect the others and then the positive as well. But like the uh, My Street Sunday is more much, you know, hey, Takashi and Yudachi, whether they knew it or not for so long, they were like influencing each other and they were all co- connected to various similar things that, you know, was a shared culture between them that inspired them growing up as manga artists before they met. But uh, yeah, like it's it's an interesting choice to put the story in this book but i think it does fit in with it in terms of like kind of the broad idea of like the way in which we can affect another person so like for good or for ill definitely better messaging than um maju and dinner yeah no <laughs> better messaging than yeah. like a collection yeah. of stories about like a middle-aged elderly men wanting to hook up with younger women to the point of one story being about a guy who's kill his wife to choke up with another woman. Viz, you can just skip that collection. Yeah, we don't need that one. You know, that one. <laughs> that one's kind of a mess. Not all the stories are terrible, but like, uh, you know, there are a lot of stories where like, eh, it's kind of gross, this character, how this character's acting. But yeah, no, I mean, we can work our way back uh, to the earlier stories and I guess we just want to go through them in order from the titular came the mirror story or yeah Yeah, sure yeah yeah i mean it is interesting because the way the stories are arranged for like the five fictional uh one shots is that they are all arranged in you know kind of descending chronological order like we're kind of starting with the newest story and working our way back to the oldest over a period of like 15 years Witcat published in 1999 and came the mirror published in 2014 and it's interesting to kind of read them that way because you're kind of seeing takashi's art like in its reverse progression of like styles so you're kind of seeing like more of the the renee more like angular smaller faces smaller eye style to like the kind of early Inuyasha where it's like it's still more of a roundness to her faces and drawings like bigger eyes and it's kind of interesting to work our way back in terms of like the development and the progression of her style in that way so I, I found that interesting yeah. even like the technology used in the in the chapters as well progressively yeah. gets reflection of like the times 
for sure. Yeah. But. Yeah. I actually hadn't thought about that until you said that. Like, well, it was something I kind of innately noticed, but like, there's still so, like, there's still so much Takahashi that I was just like, okay, it didn't feel like some other artists where you see their older work and you're like, that can't be that person. That right. looks totally different. No, <laughs> but, it's like, not as reading- dramatic. Yeah, but reading through this, I never got, I was just like, okay, that's just Takahashi. But now that I'm flipping through it, yeah, yeah, I can definitely see the market kind of like eras as, mm. you know, like, especially with uh, Came to Mirror, which, yeah, Rene, you know, Mao, obviously that's around yeah. the, you know, same period, so. Yeah, I think the biggest difference for me was like jumping from Thousand Faces to Lovely Flower. Mm-hmm. Especially with yeah. how big that jump was, because yeah. initially I didn't bother looking at the years of when they were published in the contents, and I was like, "Wait, this looks like old Takahashi. Where's my shiny new Takahashi?" <laughs> yeah, it's like a seven-year jump between Thousand Faces to Lovely Flowers, and it is crazy. Yeah, like from that's like mid Inuyasha era to like early Rene era. That's how much like her style changed, even just that stint of time which was lovely flower never been like published in a physical volume before i don't know if these stories have been published in physical collections also before i think sweet sunday probably was and i the ones of these that i read i just read like isolated fan translated before i can't really remember if like these have been published in previous collections i don't think they have i think this was like the because this was the first like rumic world book that came out in like 20 years but since like some of these were big comic stories perhaps lovely flower could have been in one of those but i don't think so hmm okay Hmm. okay um oh one thing that stuck out to me with uh came to mirror is the protagonist names nana akae and uh eito isumita seven and eight mm-hmm. which <laughs> um i i don't know if that has any bearing to anything but <laughs> i just found it interesting seven eight nine <laughs> <laughs> math with takahashi uh, yeah i wonder if there is like a significance to the names i mean seven and eight add up to 15 which is both of their ages that's like the immediate thing but like otherwise seven this is the month july eight is it it's not really referencing the period of days because it's over nine days that the story takes place so yeah i wonder so i mean but overall like before i read my sweet sunday this was probably my favorite story yeah i think I think I like Takahashi a little bit more when she's doing the supernatural sort of horror versus humor. Though that being said, I think Rama's hilarious, but like, right. yeah, I think I definitely prefer this. Yeah, and I also think that this is the strongest in concept and in how it co- relates to its team because I guess let's describe the premise of this is that in came the mirror. The idea is that people are randomly uh, assigned a mirror that shows up in the palm of their hand. It appears on them at random. And no one can see the mirror on another person. But the person with the mirror can see the ugliness within other people. Which takes the form of monstrous distortions on their faces and bodies. 
and they can hold the mirror up to those people and they can use it to exercise the horrors these monsters out of them that are inhabiting their bodies and souls and since the monsters aren't very big or very strong they can stomp them dead however the process of exorcism involves the monsters after being destroyed like traveling through the person's body who has the mirror through them and out the mirror to sanctify them purify them and having those monsters inside you is a nauseating sensation but yeah. it is just a societal expectation that people who have the mirrors are responsible for cleansing these horrors and you're expected to fulfill that obligation and so the story is about you know just one day this kid Ato, who is like going to cram school he has a big prep test like he just randomly gets killed by a guy who has been possessed by horrors and he thinks to himself like oh man like this is my fault for not doing my job but then he gets uh revived like nine days earlier and he meets another girl who has the mirror and she reveals that you know she had also previously been killed and the reason why is because she outed her creep middle school teacher who was like taking pictures of girls changing in their school locker room with a hidden camera and after she like exposed him he stalked and killed her and then she got revived and she just tried to avoid the route where he had killed her at and he she thought she was successful in that but then he ended up trying to attack her on the day of the test and he was a casualty of like his rampage and so they work together to basically try and figure out a way to find this guy and ex like exercise the horse out of him in an effort to like prevent either of them from getting killed again which they do succeed at but then later on they realize that this guy has killed multiple times before even with the horrors like taken out of him multiple times and so he comes to attack them again like all distorted and monsters again and they barely succeed in exercising the horrors out of him but he like explodes into just this mass of monsters that just like crowd all around them and it's just too much for them alone to stop like they collapse and we see them hospitalized afterwards, like with IVs attached to them, like Nana's wearing a neck place. So, like they they were like on the cusp. They were like seriously dying of this. Uh, but the story ends with them like kind of just reflecting like, you know, it was just too much for us alone to just stomp out all the horrors, all this bad stuff. But, you know, it only could be done with other people, other passersby, like came in and like helped them out in you know, taking care of their responsibility. And basically the entire kind of metaphor of the mirror in the story is like being burdened with knowing that something bad is happening, like there's something wrong with another person and then trying your best to like diffuse and resolve the situation and then just having to keep having that burden of like you're, it's up to you to deal with this problem that oftentimes is like just too much for you to handle and you need help with that you can't do these things alone like you can't deal with like all the really horrible things in the world 
alone. You can't just put that on your shoulder. It can, like, seriously hurt you. And that's kind of the case here is, like, in the end, like, Nana and Eito tried to take care of this guy himself, but, like, this guy is, like, a consistent problem. Like, even before he attacked Nana, he attacked and murdered other girls. Like, he is not the someone who they could just deal with on their own. He's, like, a problem that society at large needs to come together and kind of grapple with and deal with and, like, help these kids finish the job. And I think it's, like, a very important point that, like, the mirror revives everyone on VH18 that kind of touches upon something else like Takashi specifically trying to point out. It's like, you know, these are kids like being tasked with this responsibility of having to deal with this uncomfortable situation with trying to deal with like this creep teacher who is like praying and assaulting girls. And they need help from adults, but like they are expected just because they're the ones with the mirror who can see the badness in this guy to deal with the situation themselves. And at the end of the story, we are seeing notably on the bridge, it is adults who are coming in after like these kids have tried their best and who are like stomping out all the evils and who take care of like finishing off all these horrors. And they can only do that with the help of those people. It's really about like, you know, what burden and responsibility is often placed on people who are see that there's a problem but, like, they need help. They need other people to believe in them and be able to trust that they can see what they see and take care of it with them. Because, yeah, I mean, it's another important point that you can only see the horrors, like, if you have the mirror. And these other passers-by, like, we aren't given a temptation. They're also people with mirrors. They're just people who, like, saw that what they were trying to do, understood what they were trying to do, and then just came to help, whether they could see them or not. And it's just important to just be able to extend that trust to people who are, like, trying to deal with a problem and difficult situation, especially young people, and lend them their trust and lend them that support and help. And I think that's a very clever metaphor that Takashi came up with through this mirror and the monster motif in terms of, like, just the burden that we place... Uh, especially on young people and trying to, you know, have them deal with their problems by themselves and like not realizing kind of the damaging consequences that can have on them and just that need to be able to share that burden with other people and just resolve those problems together. So, yeah, I thought that's it was very well articulated and. It was also very relevant social commentary because there was a high-profile case of a, a school teacher who was preying on uh, girls with a hidden camera in a locker room that happened and was reported like 10 days before the story was published in Japan. So wow. it was wow. very, I don't think Takashi drew the story in reaction to that, but it was very, uh, so really serendipitous timing when I realized that, oh crap, this came out around the same time as that incident. So yeah, no, it's, it's very relevant social commentary and I think very thoughtfully handled. Yeah, I think this is easily the strongest like themed story in the collection. And also in terms of pacing where like, it feels like it, is able to tell the story more naturally to its end point where a lot of the other ones, I think just like kind of get to the end and then have a punchline and then that's over. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of abrupt. Yeah. The other ones, I think, um, uh, like adding up to what I was talking about, uh, I think what made the, the thematic impact like really land was the fact that the, the burdens that, uh, the two kids are shouldering, they're both like, 
physical and emotional. Yeah. And to be able to confide in an adult, uh, usually kids have trouble with that. Um, they either have trouble like expressing their emotions or uh, going out of their way to like look look to to adults to help towards adults to help because uh, they either they either have like a like a, a rebellious streak or they want to be independent and they want to they they want to be so eager to prove to the world that like oh i am i am old enough to take care of myself or i am, I'm, I'm capable of doing all of this on my own but then to realize that there are times you're going to need help uh and that there's no shame in really like asking for it uh i think that's a that's a really valuable lesson to to show to to yeah. a younger audience well even well not that this was aimed at a younger audience, but if they happen to come across this, like, it's a good message. Yeah. I mean, yeah, especially, like, not just, like, being able to ask for help, but also, like, seeing that someone is in trouble and going out of your way and recognizing they need help and joining in to do the right thing. That's why I think the scene at the bridge is, like, so, like, pointed. Just, like, the passers-by will come in and, like, are exercising the demons. Uh, like in their place like i think that is such an important point especially because like all the passerby we see they look like adults they're like adults who are seeing these kids are having trouble doing this on their own they all come in to help them share alleviate that burden and basically that pretty much saves their lives because like they <laughs> they are these kids are still hospitalized after this like they underwent severe physical uh anguish in dealing with the situation to say nothing about a uh, trauma but yeah no it's it's very thoughtfully considered by Takashi of like just, you know, when you're seeing someone in trouble, you should go out your way. You should reach out to them and you should like help them. Yeah. Like these kids were basically forced into being like empaths yeah. and like experiencing other people's like, uh, like suffering, I guess. And like the, the stuff that they repress. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then, uh, what makes it moving at the end is that like, Oh, these people aren't like, aren't being forced at all into, into that. And they're, they're willingly like deciding like, Hey, I'm going to help with that. Like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to also, I'm going to also empathize and like, make sure that you don't go through this on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely agree with you guys in the sense that, that this one just feels like a fully actualized story. Like, I don't, I wouldn't be opposed to more of it, but as it is, it doesn't feel like there's more story to be told, or I don't feel dissatisfied with how it, how it um, all ended. I mean, the yeah. deeper message of the fact, I mean, it, it even had a little bit of Takashi humor in the fact that they were brought back to life, and it was just like, the, the offhanded comment from Nana, I believe, was like, I think it's some kind of child, like, say, uh, child labor child law, labor law? Yeah. yeah like <laughs> it, it you know it, it 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 in a way it's kind of like it plays into what lum was saying and the idea of that you know these kids are shouldering just them by themselves but since it's such an offhanded comment i couldn't help but just kind of chuckle at it a little bit yeah it's definitely meant to be <laughs> cheeky for sure it's the absurdity that like oh there's this clause that like if a kid dies on the job doing this oh they they can get revived you know <laughs> Also, whenever, like, they point their hands at, like, the, like, creatures, it just reminds me of, like, the wind tunnel. Yeah, true. <laughs> true. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they are sucking the monsters out of them and drawing it to themselves. Uh, meanwhile, uh, when I read uh, 
what is this shit called again? Revenge uh, doll. The re- Revenge, Revenge doll. doll. Yeah, yeah I, f- I felt like I read I read something and like I was exactly back where I started. <laughs> yeah, Revenge doll doesn't. I Revenge doll is one that I have also read for and I remember really not liking it and that has not changed because I mean, for one thing, the protagonist is just really awful. Just like the worst type of scumbag selfish and spiteful just a total awful jerk of a human being who like goes out of his way to torture the people around him just out of pettiness and to the part where he's considering killing someone and in the end he is not punished he's like he has like this brief glimmer of maybe like changing his ways and becoming a better person that is like completely dissipated and by the end he has learned nothing and he's just the same scum jerk that he was and but he's not punished either he's not punished and that's i think where the real and satisfying thing is is that you know we go through this entire story of just seeing just this terrible person just hurt the people around him and scheme to like hurt the people around him and at the end like sure you know this guy he's not working for the magazine anymore who knows if we'll get work anymore but it's not really punished either he's just like kind of living kind of lazily at his home and he's still with the girlfriend he he cursed which is uh this really awful like i just feel so bad for that woman like she is like still with this guy and serving him like tea or coffee or whatever when he cursed her it's like this just terrible terrible i just really hate yeah, she can do so much better. She really could. He also just looks like drug dealer Moroku. He does. Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. Moroku, if he got high and just had just a, a very different type of life. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, puffing, using that wind tunnel to get some real puffing in. Oh, but God. I, <laughs> I, I, will, I will say, though, like, yeah, he's an unrepentant, awful human being. But I will say I like that at the end he got his own – he was the cause of his own downfall. Right. <laughs> By put, Yo, putting the, the, white, white out. the white out, yes. In, actually, yeah. In the end, he didn't lose anything, though, because he was going to – he was losing the series no He was going to kill someone. Yeah, like like what he lost is the chance to kill someone. Like no, he, there was right. no other downfall for him, you know? Like nothing else would have changed other than he would have killed this person. So if anything, he got spared like being a murderer – even though that's what he wanted to do. But, yeah, it's just like... Yeah, it's... He wasn't good enough to be light. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. It is kind of a death note premise. So, I mean, we should kind of explain the premise of Revenge at all. Is the idea is that this 33-year-old manga artist, you know, who had a big hit when he was starting out in this magazine, but in the 10 years since, has not really been able to come up with a follow-up and he has on his last chance the last series and has been told to wrap it up in 10 chapters because it's not doing very well he's not really putting his all or any effort into his work so that's not really making an appealing series to readers and he's just very bitter and resentful he thinks everyone's out to get him he thinks like the editor-in-chief who was like his former editor who he got replaced on his old series is out to get him out of like bad blood for like replacing him and he thinks he has it out for him. He thinks that, like, his young assistant, who he later fires, 
you know, is like re- uh, kind of schemed again because like he his series is replacing his and he his series is like sprung out of a one shot that he ran like while his series was on break due to his own fault because he got like hung over and late and behind. So that's why that one shot got published. But, you know, whatever. Like, so he's resentful to those guys. And he's also just, you know, spiteful to the people around him who are like not doing anything like he's he's spiteful to his editor who who, who, like you know is just trying to give him advice but like he like you know hates his they're not like taking his work seriously and then he he like hooks up with his like other assistant who's his like finisher his work you know just out of spite despite like the the young assistant mangaka because he knew that kid was into her. And so he hooked up with her just to spite that kid. And now he's continuing to just sleep with her and like string her along. And then he ends up, you know, also kind of resenting her because she grinds her teeth when she sleeps or something. She criticizes manga. Like, so, you know, he's just a total jerk to the people around him. But he receives like this doll that from a fan of his old work, his old work was called Revenge Doll. And when, because of that, like the fan, like, oh, taught of him when it, he uncovered him while clearing out this attic or whatever. And the doll basically, you know, if you think of someone's name and you like blacken, you fill out the eye on the doll and the doll has three eyes, like that person can be cursed. And if you fill out like the big eye, you can like curse someone to death, essentially. And so he uses like the first eye curse on his uh, finisher assistant. And like he curses her to get like a big sty on her eye. And then he cursed with the second eye his uh editor and that caused him to get into a car accident immediately after he picked up his pages for a deadline and because the editor and she forced that poor editor to deliver the pages before going to the hospital anyway which was all just terrible and like now that guy has like serious whiplashes wearing a neck brace and now he's thinking of using a third eye to kill someone and he's thinking he's going to kill his editor and the editor-in-chief for, you know, canceling his series. But then the editor-in-chief visits him one night and tells him that he thinks that he doesn't have long to live and just wants him to listen to his, like, last request of, like, just putting his all into the last chapters of the series. So he ends up doing that, and the doll, like, he, you know, gets creeped out about it because, like, his uh, assistant tries to throw it away, but it then keeps coming back and then he tries to keep throwing it away. And so he gets creeped out of like using it and the idea of using it. So then he just actually does put effort into his series again. And things seem to be going better. Like, you know, everyone is happier with him and he's happier. And he's, it seems like he's changed his ways. But then when he finds out that, you know, he is getting let go from the magazine after all, even though the series has improved and stuff you know he becomes resentful of his young assistant all over again and he's like okay i'm gonna use the doll to kill this kid after all and he blacks out the eye or he tries to black out the eye but he gets into conflict with his other assistant and instead accidentally uses whiteout instead and that erases all the 
curses and destroys the doll. And so, yeah, it just ends with him, like, you know, the he's just fired, and the new series is published. The editor-in-chief just had a stomach ulcer, so he's fine. So, you know. That was the funniest part to me. <laughs> it was. Like, it's like, just oh, so yeah, casually, this is a stomach ulcer, guys. Just so casually says it, yeah. But... Yeah, like, and that's the thing about the story is that this is a story about a guy who just did all these awful things to the people around him, and he just gets off consequence-free, really. Like, again, like, the the thing, like, he, there was no down, the downfall he had is just all due to his own actions uh, before even using the doll. It was just not putting effort into a series and just treating the people around him so badly that no one wants to work with him anymore. And... Like, really, he just was spared almost by becoming a murderer by, like, the by making the mistake of, like, whiting out the eyes on the doll. So I'm glad that all the people that he cursed or was trying to curse was spared, like, you know, the terrible fates that, that he was, like, trying to inflict upon them. But, like, he himself is not really punished. He's just, like, lying lazily at his uh, studio and I don't know if we'll get more work. I don't know what's going to happen. But, like, you know, it's just it's not a very cathartic, satisfying punishment for this character. And this character is not grown or changed as a better person or anything. So it's kind of very frustrating. Especially because, as mentioned before, the female assistant is still living with this guy, even though he cursed her and she knows he cursed her, which is also frustrating because... That he just did an awful thing to her. So dump that yeah. piece of shit. Go go find someone else. Seriously. So overall, you know, if this still fits into the overall themes we were discussing about about the ways in which you know we our actions affect others, uh, the burdens we place upon others. Because like this guy's literally placing curses upon others, much like how it was discussed, like using the mirror in the previous story, it felt like a curse placed upon those kids. Like in this story, like yeah, literally the protagonist is placing curses upon others, and it's like you know seriously through the course of his actions like affecting the lives for the worse or just through his own like negligence unintentionally affecting their lives in different ways like the young assistant because he was so because like he got hung over like he gave the young assistants a chance to get his one shot published and then get his series published so it ties in into those broader themes in a way that i appreciate with the other series and collection but as the story in of itself is very frustrating. Yeah, because it's like very obvious you're supposed to not like him from the outside, but like there's no payoff to it. You want to see him like get punished, and it never happens. Yeah. Yeah, that shit's fine. <laughs> How do you guys feel about uh the star has a thousand faces? I I was my least favorite one. Mm. It just felt very convoluted for no reason, really. <laughs> this is one. <laughs> yeah, it's predicated on kind of like some very flimsy or like very like melodramatic dramatized misunderstanding of like the main protagonist who's like the star actress thinks she's killed like her showrunner just after like he kind of ribs her about like her crush over her co-star who you know is outed as like loving like you know a different woman a bustier woman and so she, you know they're at a bar and she like pushes his own and she thinks that he sh she broke his neck and so she runs off into the countryside before they finish filming the final episode to like kill herself uh, off by throwing her off herself off a cliff or whatever and ultimately she can't like bring herself 
to do it. Uh, and she ends up, like, staying in an inn where, like, the son of the innkeeper is, like, a huge fan of hers. And I was like, oh, these posters in a room and stuff. And so he ends up calling the studio and letting them know that she's there. And so then, like, everyone comes to the inn to film the final scene just super impromptu. And they manage to film the scene and get it on broadcast in time somehow. See, the thing that really kind of make me take it aback by the progression of the story here. It's like uh, the final sequence of events of like the other actors and the crew like coming to the end and just filming the final scene. This happens like super abruptly. And it's also like, she just somehow gets into the swing of like doing the scene. Like, because at first it seems like, Oh, is it a dream sequence? But then no, it actually is happening. And, yeah, that confused me at first. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was like missing a page or yeah, something. Yeah, that's what it was. I was like, "What is this really happening?" And then when I finished it, I was just like, "Oh, that really did just happen." Oh, okay. And then you have to wonder the logistics of this. Like, did the does the location match? Does the like setting match? And like, I you know, it is made a point of she memorized the lines or whatever, but still, like, she just immediately gets in a swing and it just feels like there's a whole lot of set a whole lot of work goes into filming a scene of a tv show in, in terms of just sheer setup that it's like crazy to imagine how this could have been done just spur of the moment yeah they'll just fi- fix it in the magical land of post yeah, and also, like, no, see, that's the other thing, is that this is hap- they're filming the scene literally the day this episode is supposed to air, and just hours before it's set to air, and you're left wondering, how are they supposed to edit this footage into the final episode before broadcast? And somehow, that's what happens, but, like, timeline-wise, it is so confusing, like, how it's they so could made yeah. it work. Yeah exactly it's just super convoluted and super contrived and it's not the payoff in the end isn't it being a you know a a rim shot just (laughs) it's crazy because like the whole the the name of it is the star has a thousand faces Mm. and she used one she didn't didn't even use it because she had the mask on for half of it on the bright side, we did get that one panel of Sister Angela. No, yeah, and Kikyo too, I guess, is one of her personas. So that was a fun joke. I, I did like, you know, seeing some of the, um, yeah, some of the other Takashi works represented. And, mm-hmm. like... Yeah, I do think those other characters are from other one-shots, too. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty clever. But, yeah, no, the, in terms of, like, the overall storytelling of this, it just, the resolution was just very all over the place and just didn't super work connectively in terms of how it connects with the overall team this is another one that fits in pretty well because like literally this woman by like kind of going AWOL on the job like that affects the entire production team and so they're all scrambling to try and find where she is and she's reflecting on oh like my meeting these different people kind of shaping the actress i came to be like my connection with these people you know affected me as a person what kind of person i grew into being and then also her interacting with a fan who is like someone who's like very inspired very in love with her work is another reflection of like hey this is an impact that she as an actress has had on this person 
And so, yeah, like, in terms of, like, the overall message in, in terms of, like, relating to the other stories of, like, hey, how do we affect other people and influence, make influence on their lives? You know, this is, fits into it very well in terms of the uh, other idea of, like, uh, placing burdens on other people's interactions. Like, this fits into that pretty well, but, like, how she kind of causes the production to scramble through, like, again, just going a wall before they film the final scene and then all coming together at the end to kind of, you know, connect her and reassure her that everything's going to be okay. But yeah, just in terms of like the actual like progression of the story, it's just very slipshod. It, it like Takashi yeah. does take a lot of cheats and just saying, Oh, it, it just worked out without when like logistically you are left thinking, well, how, how could this have possibly <laughs> happened in this amount of time? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I will say, you know, the scene with um doing the Chonoichi chin that, 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 that made me laugh. Like, when the cops showed up and they're, like, you know, they're looking for, like, it's implied that, like, she commit. they're looking for a woman who murdered somebody, which mm. isn't her, since obviously the guy is alive, but she thinks she did. So, yeah. yeah, they show up and they say, they recognize her and she runs. And then, you know, she does, like, this, she, like, juts out her chin and she's like, no, you got the wrong girl. And she runs yeah. for it. <laughs> and, like, the, the, you know, the cop is kind of like, oh, it's not her. I really like her i'm a huge fan and then <laughs> i like i did like that that no way yeah, that just way too big yeah, that was a good <laughs> gag. I, I, I did like that gag but yeah otherwise i uh, wasn't a fan of this one mm-hmm. yeah it was a mess <laughs> mm-hmm. so but i mean how do we feel about lovely flower i actually kind of dig that one lovely flower is probably my favorite story in the collection because i really love the vibes and the mystery of it and i thought that it ended up having a very clever kind of resolution and uh yeah like i so the premise of this one is that this woman is like see being kind being like harassed with like spam emails from a troll slash stalker and at the same time everywhere she goes she's seeing like this red flower red yellow flower everywhere that she thinks smells awful but everyone around her all her friends everyone she meets seems to really love and they all say they got it from this guy who like the image that they described her changes from person to person and it all sounds like each of the people she's talking to each of the women she's talking to describing this guy is describing the kind of like person they are attracted to and want to sleep with and so eventually she pieces together that the person they're describing is all the same guy and he's leaving these flowers as an attempt to harass her and also to like kind of ultimately view her with the aroma and fragrance of the flowers and this guy turns out to be like someone who was a co-worker of her husband's and had actually attended a lot of different like events with her like she he they were attended a class a seminar with her like they were at her wedding but she didn't she never recognized him she never like paid him any attention or noticed him and so that's why he like came up with this scheme to engineer these flowers that would use pheromones to attract 
like women and specifically like kind of manipulate like their visual cortex by giving them an illusion most pleasing to them. And so it worked with all the other women in terms of making them see the person they're most attracted to. And he's trying to use it on her, but it doesn't work on her. Like when he tries to use it on himself in front of her, he's just like like a horrible, like flower headed monster. And so he's like, who the fuck are you? (laughs) (laughs) Who's that flower mom? Stop. (laughs) And so he kind of ends up, runs off realizing that she is not working on her and her husband also ends up coming home at that moment and kind of revealing who he is to her and then they basically basically it turns out that the reason it didn't infect her is because she became pregnant she was pregnant and the hormones changed her sense of smell so the pheromones didn't affect her in the same way so yeah like, this was a good kind of creepy mystery story with this imagery of, like, this woman being kind of stalked and harassed and, like, gaslit of, like, feeling like every, like everyone's saying, oh, these flowers smell so wonderful. And they were given to me by such a handsome guy. And then she's, like, smelling these flowers like, they smell just awful to her. So repulsive she feels like she could suffocate and die, like, being around them. She has to wear a mask, like, when interacting with them. And then, like, yeah, ultimately. Uh, can I, can I sidebar real quick? Yeah. That's how I felt when everyone said they really loved the Shinjuku art in JJK. I was just like, where am I? (laughs) Sometimes it's okay to be wrong, Marion. Yeah. It's okay. Okay. Uh, My personal nightmare. uh, That's going to be me when Chainsaw Man starts airing. Anyway, yes, yes. um, (laughs) Going on. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I did, like, I will admit I was kind of, mm, not, I wouldn't say wary, but, like, I don't know what I want to say about this one. I wouldn't say I didn't like it, but the twist at the end saved it for me, because I felt like the premise was a little bit weak for me. I don't know. Like, uh, I thought it was, it was it just, it wasn't really hooking my attention, but then I will, mm. like, I do like this in comparison to the story before it. I do like the ending, like, wraps up everything really, like, um, satisfactorily for me. Yeah. Like, I, I will say that much. But, like, the story itself just wasn't hooking me the way that, like, Mirror did. Yeah. So I think I have the opposite problem where, like, it was, like, intriguing me up until the ending where it kind of just, like, quickly ends. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I I think, like, the big reveal imagery at the end of like him having the flower head was very good and i think like the ending kind of resolved decently i mean i would have liked this guy to have been like outright punished but i think like the ironic kind of musing of like oh this guy you know he was trying to manipulate me through using these pheromones but it was him himself lost in the illusion the fantasy of his own flowers so see that that's the punishment is what I really want out of yeah. it. I think, and because it's not there, it's not a satisfying. I can get that, me. but like in this case, like you know, the protagonist, the woman is fine at the end. Like she, and presumably, is not going to be in danger of this guy again because he gave up and moved away. So I wasn't as bothered by it as the like lack of catharsis in Revenge at all, where like you know the guy is not punished for being horrible and there are like other people who he's affected that are still in his life with the like female ancestors. but yeah no and in terms of, again to relating to the overall 
theme of the story. Like this is how like the ways in which we influence uh, or affect each other's life. Like this, the woman did not recognize or realize this guy was even a part of her life, and then trying to make her recognize him like he really was causing her a lot of anxiety and pain and suffering uh so i thought that was an interesting angle uh and an interesting fit into the overall theme of the stories and yeah i thought that it was just in general like a very interesting suspenseful read and i thought it was very funny like some of the girl some of the men that the girls thought Utsugi looked like like one girl thought he looked like nick cage yes <laughs> and david beckham <laughs> it's pretty wild pretty funny and one girl the one girl horny for nick cage is very funny to me the idea, because the idea is that they're all hor- like that they see the person they're most horny for, right? So that's very funny. <sighs> yes, that 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 got me laughing a lot when they were all like different people. I mean, I guess at that point, that's when I was like a little bit more interested in what's going. On. Okay, why are they all seeing different people? And like, I just love, I love when manga name drops like um, foreign, yeah, now. real people like foreign, especially foreign celebrities like that. Oh yeah, like I, I really love it when manga does that because then it feels like. It feels less insular, you know? A lot of times you're reading manga, unless you're into... When you're into manga, you don't think about it so much. But it feels very insular until, like, somebody drops Nick Cage. And you're like, oh, right. This is a product <laughs> of the world. <laughs> this, oh, my God. This know, came like, out in 2003. When was Wicker Man? Nick Cage's Wicker Man. Oh, this is years before that, but still. What movie was this girl like super in love with Nick Cage? National oh, Treasure. Like, no, Night Rider was two thousand four, wasn't it? Oh, God. Uh, but National Treasure might have been it then. I think that might have been the most recent. Oh God. We're gonna steal the Rafflesia of Independence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess next up is unless we have something else we want to say. Next up is we're we're going to Garfield and Friends. Let's go to Ranma One Half. <laughs> Ranma One Cat. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh-huh. Thank you, Bieber. There is only one cat too. This guy only one of his arms is turned into a cat. So yeah, but yeah, like we kind of mentioned before, this has very Ranma E vibes in terms of the main protagonists. You know, he's also a martial artist, but like he's this big fear of cats because when he was a kid, his like grandma was like always telling him that cats are not to be trusted or whatever. And so that's kind of put a strain on his relationship with his childhood friend, Miwa, because, you know, she has a pet cat called uh, Torajio that's even older than her. She's been a long time pet of hers. And, you know, when they were kids, like, he climbed up a tree to get away from her and Torgia, because it was kind of Torgia, and he fell off the tree and broke his, like, arm. And ever since then, even though his arm seal now is fine now, like, there's been a lot of distance between him and Mia over the incident. And she kind of vents to him about him to Torchio. And then just one day like Torchio like attacks him and like he kind of hurts his arm before like disappearing. 
and basically he sees a vision of him in his sleep the next night of like saying that he's going to coerce him and take over his body and sure enough like his left arm becomes a cat arm and so he and Miwach have to like figure out how to kind of undo the curse and figure out what and where Churchill went and eventually he kind of loses patience whether because there are like misunderstandings in which you know people think they're close and you know they're misunderstanding like she thinks that he hates her and he thinks she hates him and eventually she kind of confesses that she thinks the reason that Torgia cursed him was that you know she hated him and she rented to Torchia about that and he cleared up that, oh, well, you know, I, I didn't see you, want to see you back then when we were kids after the accident, uh, just because Torchia was at you. I, actually, I did want to see you, and I never really hated you. And so then that makes her reflect that, no, she never really talked about how much she hated Drew to, to Torchio. She talked about how much she liked him, and so she kind of breaks down. And then he notices he comes back to console her with, his own hand and not Torchia's hand. And yeah, like they kind of make amends. And you think like the reason that Torchia cursed him was because, oh, he wanted to mend their relationship after all this time. But no, the real reason, the twist is that he was just excited for his 20th birthday present. He knew that he wasn't going to live long enough to get it. So uh, basically that's the resolution is that that passes and his arms back to normal. But like, yeah, now both Shuta and Miwa have kind of repaired the relationship and are friends again. I love how the but the truth uh, box is like in a blood splatter yeah. like a uh, border. Yeah, it's like setting up like oh, it's even more horrifying re- truth about why Torchio cursed him. It's like no, it's actually such a mundane, silly reason. <laughs> Superficial. Yeah, it, it really reason. like it just reflects the age of Ranma. Just like it feels, I I could feel this being like a, a filler episode of Rama anime or something. Yeah, it <laughs> like, is totally a Rama type <laughs> gag for sure. This could have been a Rama. Sorry, I totally could have believed it. Especially with like the dynamic between the leads, like it's so Rama Nakane. Yes, yes, especially when they're like he's like. I mean, when the when Torchio breaks his arm when he's in high school, he's like, you know, she's she's apologizing, and he's like, no, nah, it wasn't your fault this time. He's like, excuse yeah. me, but you were the one that fell out the tree, <laughs> and like I just said, ah, oh, this is Rama Nakane. Yeah, <laughs> even her expressions like really feel Akane as her, like very much in this era of Takashi's art that like characterized late Rama, early Inuyasha to me, uh, in terms of. Her exp- facial uh, expressions, her eyes, like that, yeah, they very much resemble, uh, like how I would imagine Connie to react in this kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially like at the beginning, where like her classmates were talking about how cute he is, and she just rolled her eyes in like the, yeah. this way that just was very Rama-ish. Like, uh, I, I got like a whole nostalgia vibe from just this whole thing. Just yeah, um. And especially just that how easily they bought the story <laughs> about mm-hmm. how YA suddenly has a cat arm like that also felt very because one thing about Ranma and I guess Takahashi's humor in general is it's very dry. Like you mm-hmm. don't get the whole um, 
Sukomi and Bokeh thing where like people were screaming about how ridiculous something is. Everybody just kind of rolls with things. <laughs> and that in and of itself is what is funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. It really does feel like, oh, like they really accept this as part of their daily life now. Like, yeah. You know, it's just the Takashi style of like in the in the world, like the absurd and the mundane coexist side by side. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty. It was a pretty satisfying story. Mm, very charming. But yeah, I mean, we already talked about Sweet Sunday, so I guess are there any other overall thoughts? So I guess I, in terms of like again, thematic uh, relevance to the other ones, you know, this is another one of like communication problems causing a rift between our two leads here. They not realizing how they really felt about each other and how they were affecting each other in terms of like they're keeping silent and keeping their distance from one another. And which leading to Torchio, like, you know, <laughs> sensibly he has the selfish reason, but the the reason imagined of like, you know, him bringing them together again after driving them apart when they were kids that fulfills the intended purpose of like, yeah, and communicating with each other and like they realize like oh they really do mean something to each other you know and so yeah i think uh it fits in pretty well with the the teams of the other stories too in terms of like thinking about like the ways in which we affect other people and how our actions influence and are interpreted and affect other people yeah I, i'd agree with that like um and of course it ties into the horror thing with the quasi transformation yeah. and yeah that is a very horror scene even though the rest of it is played for comedy like it is a yeah. very bottom horror moment and like when she the grandmother expression when she's saying cats are unforgiving like that's another like horror image that's played very well for comedic effect like with her old and shadowed and stuff but her face because cats are unforgiving <laughs> it's funny how it's still less horrifying than that fucking manticore looking cat from the Renee. Yeah, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my god. <laughs> uh, Which cat even Rokumon? I just I just hate that human face on that oh, cat. Yeah, Rokumon, yeah. Rokumon, yeah. Rokumon's so adorable He's a good though. Boy. He's like Shippo but not useless. Yeah. <laughs> God. Shippo's so useless it took them 40 episodes to have him show up in Yashihime. And then even then in the manga, it's like, he, it's where's Waldo with him? You just see him pop up in a chapter and you have to go back in the chapter and figure out where he was the entire time because he has no presence. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so I mean, I guess our overall thoughts of it? Clearly, we need to rank these stories. <laughs> this isn't a Shonen Jump podcast, so we're not... No, I'm kidding. Uh, okay. Hmm. Mirror, for, for me, anyway, uh, Mirror would definitely be first. Um, mm-hmm. Cat, the cat would be second. Uh, mm, lovely Flower and the Revenge Doll. Yeah, that's how I do it. I mean, honestly, no. No, I take that back. My Sweet Sunday would be first. <laughs> Then the rest. <laughs> yeah. I would, I, I'm, I'm like, uh, I actually liked um, the, the flower one about as much as I did the the cat one. So I would, I would, they would both be tied for number two for me. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not including uh, the, the Sunday one, by the way. Yeah. 
I mean, Velor, do you want to go before me, or should I go next? Or? Uh, I'll go, I guess. I mean, okay. So, I'm not going to include the Sweet Sunday one, because the Sweet mm-hmm. Sunday one is just going to be at the top, I guess. Yeah, it feels just so separate. Like, I couldn't rank it amongst the rest of these, because it's such a different type of one-shot. It's like an autobiographical reflection from Adachi and Takahashi about their careers, whereas the rest are, like, short fiction stories. So, yeah, it's it's hard to compare. Of course, everyone's favorite part of the meal is dessert. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is a su- it is a sweet Sunday, so mm. yeah, that makes uh, sense. True. True. <laughs> yeah, I guess best from best to worst, uh, mirror, then flower, cat, uh, thousand faces, then doll at the bottom. Oh, you know, I think I will have to mirror what feel or it here. I think my order is exactly the same. Oh, nice. <laughs> For reasons I think we've discussed on the, the podcast pretty well. But yeah, I think the, that's in order of like how strong I think the the stories and the themes uh, as reflected in the stories were. Beautiful. I'll shake on that. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> and also how likable the characters are, I think. Because, yeah, as we descend, we're getting into like characters who are like, you know, really unlikable in terms of revenge at all or really like kind of you know, hard to get a sense of in Thousand Faces. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say this is, like, worth reading if, like, not every story resonates with you, just because, like, it's interesting seeing, like, these, like, different types of stories that Takashi does that we yeah. don't normally see. And two-thirds of the stories are really great, and Velma reading, like, the, the story start off strong with Kane Kem- the Mirror. It's a very thoughtful piece of social commentary. And then you get, again, the dessert, the creme of the piece is like My Sweet Sunday, which is just a fascinating look at manga history and the careers of two of some of the greatest artists in the business. So, I mean, if you're like a manga fan interested in like manga history and especially in the history and the careers of these two authors, like that story alone is a selling point for this book, I think. Mm, agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's uh, time to wrap it up. All right. All right. Lum, why don't you have the honor of giving us all your social media so that we can, our, our lovely listeners can know where to find you? Well, thank you. And I try not to take too long of this, but you can find me personally at Lomomayasha on Twitter and you can also find me pretty much wherever I am by the username, primarily Letterboxd and Animation Revelation Reuters and Annie List Reuters, a lumber launcher that's going to find me. And you can also read my manga reviews on mangamarks.com. we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out. I definitely have I've started a review for King the Mirror, so you can look forward to one on there. As well as other, you know, Takahashi reviews and other manga reviews. we got a lot to work on and write about. But also, of course, MangaMarks.com is the home of my flagship podcast, MangaMarks, where we discuss manga as both a medium and as an industry. And you can follow us on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks and on every podcast platform you can think of Apple's podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and the like. Wherever you listen to podcasts, we're on it. And if you want more specific uh, Rumiko Takahashi-related podcasts from me, you should definitely be checking out Lum Squad, the Yurusei Yatsura-focused podcast I do 
with my good friend Andrew AC Yoshimura discussing the wonderful arcade world of Takashi's first and classic series, Yurisigatsura, having a lot of fun discussing Viz's releases of the manga, as well as the movies now they're on Crunchyroll and on Blu-ray from Discotech, and we're so excited to discuss about the new anime coming later this year, so we have a lot to talk about, we're really excited about our plans for the show this year and you can find us on twitter at long discord squad and on every podcast i'm going to think of like apple podcast Spotify, Stitcher, and the like and if you want to like support our podcasts you can head over to patreon.com where we have like a lot of like tier options in terms of bonus podcasts that you can play support at and like all the support you draw away you know gives you access to early episodes of our shows and also just helps us keep making cool podcasts and uh, if you like the art I do for our podcasts, illustrations I do, animations, illustrations I make in general, you can find that on my Instagram at Artwork. Nice, sweet. Definitely, definitely give them a give them a follow. Check out all their stuff. Uh, Lumen does amazing work. Well, thank you. Um, you're welcome. Uh, now, V Lord, you get the pl- you get the honor of following up. Okay then. Yeah, people can find me on Twitter at VLordGTZ. Then I write various things for allcomic.com, as well as Tsunami Faithful. And I also am involved with a number of podcasts with these fine folks. Our biggest podcast, which is a number, like, I don't know, no, number 30, top 100, where we're really big in over 40 countries somehow. The Demon Slayer Podcast. On Twitter at Slayer Podcast, we talk about Demon Slayer. So if you like Demon Slayer and want to hear some people talk about it at nauseum, go over there. But aside from that, uh, I'm also involved with Oversoul Shaman King Podcast with Mirren Sakaki. Um, at Shaman King Pod, and I also do the Dumb Weebs podcast over at Dumb Weebs Pod, as well as the Toonami Faithful podcast at Toonami Podcast. So check out all of those. Nice, Sakaki. Yo, all right. Um, I'm honored to accept this honor. <laughs> um, you can find me at um, well. At WSS Talkback on Twitter, which is the weekly Shogaku condition where we talk about all of Shonen Sunday. So there are there is some Takahashi talk, but I mean we're not quite focused on that. But yeah, you can definitely we, we definitely do talk about her quite a bit. Um we do we're there are lots of magazine-based Twitters out there, but we're the only ones that go through the entire magazine every week. Um and don't you forget it. Exactly. <laughs> Um, besides that, you can also check us out wsstalkback.blogspot.com, which is where the the blog that accompanies the Twitter, where we have translations of interviews, reviews of Sunday manga. Um, yeah, you can definitely go check that out. And as always, I always say this, and everybody is welcome to join in, whether it's a currently running Sunday series or when it ended a long time ago or anything. We are always looking for guest guest writers, so please, by all means, come come hit us up. Um, as Lum mentioned, there are, uh, the Manga Mavericks podcast has different tiers. If you're willing, if you are, um, donate, 
And one of those tiers you can get, you can unlock a podcast I'm doing with my good friend Colton, Another Day, Another Adventure, at Another DV Pod. Um, where if it's animated and has Goku in it, we're going to try to talk about it. And we're actually doing a pretty good job because we're in the 40s now. It feels like we just started. But yeah, we're making our way through the original Dragon Ball. And that's been a lot of fun. So please, by all means, um, if you want to hear those episodes early, um, you know, contribute to the Manga manga Mavericks Patreon. Otherwise, I mean, if you don't feel like you have to, because the episodes do come out publicly after some time. So definitely check that out. Um, and yeah, you can find me personally at Kirobon, K-I-I-R-O-B-O-N on Twitter. Um I just started Yu-Gi-Oh! read for the first time ever. <laughs> I'm more of a Yu-Gi-Oh! Fan, um, anime guy, so this is going to be interesting to go through. Um, yeah, and a lot, I got a lot of people really excited to have me read it, which is always validating. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're into that, check that out. And that's where you can find me. Nice! Um, you can find me on Twitter at Microwavy, the E is before the V. Uh, sometimes I contribute to, uh, the WSS Talkback blog. Uh, so if you want to see my writing, you can find it there at wsstalkback.blogspot.com. Sometimes I also contribute, uh, writing for Tsunami Faithful at tsunamifaithful.com. Uh, and I also have my own personal blog. That's, uh, heavensdoorknob.wordpress.com. Uh, I have not done much recently. Uh, still super bogged at work. Uh, for those who do kind of like, I guess, keep up with uh, what I've been doing, uh, I, I recently got certified. So I'm a nationally accredited pharmacies technician. So Ooh. poggers. Yeah. Ooh. And uh, yeah, well, that's, that's what I've been up to besides uh, just general uh, fighting COVID <laughs> at work. Uh, but yeah, uh, very, very happy about that. Thanks to, to all of you guys, all of my friends and everyone else who's been supporting me along the way. It's not easy, like working full time and like trying to make the most out of your hobbies, but it, it's always fulfilling when I do get to spend time with you guys. So thanks. Um, of course. and, uh, yeah, uh, you can find all the other podcasts. I, co-host in or star in or whatever guest frequent whatever whatever the phrase is on uh the the link in my my twitter bio um and uh yeah besides that uh you can find saturday night shoggy on twitter at sat night shoggy uh you can find us on your preferred podcast platform uh we should be on basically all of them most of them uh and uh yeah if you happen to enjoy listening to us uh do do rate us uh leave comments if you can uh give us any feedback uh we do have a we have an email right uh in case people want to send like maybe longer form messages do we i think we do that's news to me (laughs) Uh, just actually just send it to the send it to the the, the WSSTV email Uh, oh okay we we... do we do actually it's satnightshoggy at gmail.com poggers alright do that Uh, and yeah I think I think that covers about most of it Uh, alright then (laughs) you know what I just thought of Uh, 
It, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, I think, um, no, this, this joke doesn't land because, uh, I was thinking about, uh, what the fuck is this the story called again? The one with the cat? Wait. With cat? With cat, yeah. Yeah. It looks like, uh, toward the end, uh, what's his face? Shooter? Yeah. Shooter was trying to pet the pussy. I'm so mad. He was. Marion, why? Yeah, I guess he was placing one. Let's see another. Oh, boy. Got you. <laughs> All right, good night, folks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what the fuck? I can't even follow up with that one, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs>